0: Hello listeners, if you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. But wait, there's more. You can now contribute through Venmo and Zelle by using my email address spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks.
1: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You've got
2: speed, John Glenn.
3: Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. My are out. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder?
2: At last, huh? And that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Martin giant for giant leap for mankind.
0: Hello and welcome, this is Michael Annis and you are listening to episode 418 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 3, AMU, EVA 2, Space Physics, Solar Physics, and Mission Extinction. Last time we stopped at the end of Mission Day 22 of the second crewed mission, to Skylab, officially named Skylab-3. On or about mission day 23, the astronauts tested the Astronaut Maneuvering Unit, or AMU. I have a little background information on that device, and I'd like to share that with you. You may remember during the first American spacewalk, Ed White experimented with an astronaut propulsion device called the Handheld Maneuvering Unit. The Handheld Maneuvering Unit used by White was a three-jet maneuvering device similar to a gun. Two jets were placed at the ends of rods and aimed back at the astronaut so that firing them pulled White forward in space. The third jet was aimed forward to provide braking. To operate the handheld maneuvering unit, White had to hold the gun near his center of mass and aim it in the direction in which he wanted to travel, and thus he was propelled forward. To stop the forward motion, he would fire the braking jet. To achieve propulsion, the handheld maneuvering unit released compressed oxygen from two small built-in tanks. Although the very simple handheld maneuvering unit worked, there were a couple of shortcomings. First, to produce the desired motion, it had to be held as close to the astronaut's center of mass as possible. Now, this was not as easy as it sounds because the astronaut was wearing a bulky spacesuit, so it was more of a trial and error experience. Second shortcoming precise motions to position an astronaut properly during an activity for example, working on a satellite, were difficult to achieve and maintain, and it was physically exhausting to the astronaut. Then, on Gemini 9, a backpack maneuvering unit was brought into space. However, problems with the unit and other issues prevented Gene Cernan from testing it. The Apollo program did not test any zero-g maneuvering units, so the next attempt was made on the second and third manned Skylab missions. The astronaut maneuvering unit was only tested inside the orbital workshop. However, the experiments confirmed that a maneuvering device of that design was both feasible and desirable for future EVA use. Five of the six astronauts who flew in those two missions accumulated a total of 14 hours testing the device. You may be wondering what this advanced device looked like. Well, the AMU was shaped like a large hiker's backpack. A tank of compressed nitrogen was built into the frame of the backpack. The maneuvering controls for the unit were placed at the ends of armrests. To move, the astronaut operated rotational and translational hand controls. In response to the hand controls, propulsive jets of nitrogen gas were released from numerous nozzles installed around the unit. The 14 nozzles were arranged to aim that propulsive gas top to bottom front to back, and right to left, to produce six degrees of possible movement. The astronaut maneuvering unit could move forward and back, up and down, and side to side. It could roll, pitch, and yaw. The 11 additional nozzles provided precise positioning with the AMU far superior to the handheld maneuvering unit tested in the Gemini program. Furthermore, since the astronaut was virtually surrounded by the unit, there was no guesswork needed for determining the center of mass, thus making control much more accurate. The astronaut was now capable of moving closely along the surface of a curved or irregularly shaped object without making contact with it. The Skylab AMU led to the manned maneuvering unit used during early space shuttle flights. Now I have a clip of astronauts testing the astronaut maneuvering unit inside Skylab.
1: In evaluating the requirements for future manned space flights, high priority is placed on a machine that will allow an astronaut to move freely in space. Such a machine is the astronaut maneuvering unit, here being flight-tested by Alan Bean. Now he's going to fly around those ring lockers.
4: maneuvering unit was quite reliable, quite easy to fly. As you know, I believe this is me flying it here, and then Jack flew it some, and we wanted to uh, ask Owen to fly it since he had gone through none of the training. And he got in there and flew it just as well as uh, either of us with the minimum of training and uh, just the on-the-job training up there kind of gave you a feeling that uh, this sort of a maneuvering unit could be built where uh, pre-flight uh, training would be minimized and uh, yet you could still do the job you wanted to do outside. Uh, I, say, I say we got
2: enough to do it, Al. We got uh, about uh, eight to 900 pounds uh, enough to do the uh Baseline maneuver once more and boat direct. Same thing, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, maybe another advantage point. Makes me nice. I'm ready when you, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, I'm ready when you are, let's go. Okay, he's uh, switching to direct mode. He's backing off from the donning station. Rotating to his right, away from the TV camera. Okay. He wants to do it because that's the way he's done it before. He's got nice rotation going and a little translation. Right now he's shooting a little bit below banjo. He's uh, got about half of his rotation about halfway there. He's uh, going to be uh, in attitude before he gets to the banjo, which is uh, no problem at all. Now he's stabilizing attitude. His feet are just passing uh, about five inches above the uh, food lockers. Coming up with the banjo. His toes are about to touch the dome lockers. Toes on dome lockers. Owen Jerry getting his own television.
3: The backpack unit was designed to study the feasibility of such equipment or use outside a spacecraft on future missions. A foot-controlled
1: maneuvering unit was later tested, but in its present configuration, it got rather low marks in performance. The future design that will shuttle astronauts between spacecraft or from spacecraft to satellite will likely be similar to the hand-operated model.
0: As you heard, the astronauts also tested a maneuvering unit controlled by the operator's feet called the TO-20. This unit did not work as well as the AMU. In fact, Bean wrote in his diary, quote, Flew TO-20 for the first time. Jack, as usual, had the dirty work, but was trying harder because of his error yesterday. The work was slow and tedious because it was the first time around. And because the strap design was poor. End quote. Now we will move on from the maneuvering unit test to mission day 24. Most of the day was spent trying to find a condensate leak. Bean wrote in his diary, quote, A tough, tough day. Worked almost all day on trying to find the leak in the condensate vacuum systems. Hundreds of high-torque screws, stethoscope, soap bubbles, 35 PSI nitrogen. Reconfiguring several pieces of the H2O equipment. We never found the leak. That effort must have cost $2.5 $2.5 million in flight time. End quote. However, a few days later, the crew noticed that the leak had stopped. Whatever the astronauts did in taking apart, reconfiguring, and reassembling the tubing actually fixed the leak. This led NASA to conclude that the leak was probably from a loose fitting or connection. A little earlier that day, Garriott got the word that Skylab would be flying over his hometown of Enid, Oklahoma at night and the town was going to put the lights on for him. Owen watched as he passed and described passing over the large cities, but he forgot to mention Enid, Oklahoma. Of course, he and his wife had to apologize profusely for that omission. On mission day 25, the crew found out that they would have a second EVA, this time to replace the six-pack gyros. The six-pack gyros consisted of a set of six gyroscopes, The six-pack itself was actually to be installed by Garriott inside the Skylab. But, turning over attitude control to the new system required going outside and connecting up a set of cables to change over the station's original attitude control rate gyros on the outside to the new ones on the inside. Deciding who would get to perform the EVA was mostly the responsibility of the mission commander, which was Alan Bean. This was actually a difficult decision for Bean. He wanted to do it himself because he had to stay inside for the first EVA, and he thought he was a better handyman than Owen Garriott. But Owen really wanted to do it as well. So Bean decided that he and Owen would do the EVA. However, after reading the procedures, Bean realized that he should stay inside because of his command and service module experience, just in case he had to go and retrieve someone who had floated off. So Bean assigned Lousma to perform the six-pack work since he was the most mechanical and strongest, in case he ran into difficulty loosening the connectors that had not been designed to loosen in space. Owen would perform a support role for Jack. On mission day 28, August 24, 1973, it was time to perform the second EVA. Garriott and Lausma once again stepped outside the orbital workshop for a four and one half hour EVA.
3: During a second EVA, the astronauts installed new electrical connections outside the station. The connections were part of a gyro package, which the astronauts had brought with them on their trip up to the station. The new gyroscope replaced a faulty component used in the pointing and attitude control systems of the space station. Okay, Bruce, uh, I'm down here looking at WCIU with all
4: these connectors, and I uh, just got the uh, victim loose. And in a few
2: minutes, uh, the good Lord will, and the creek don't rise. We're going to have this hooked
1: up. The package was installed and placed online. Within minutes, the results were in
4: the CDR and telemetry, the six-pack is looking good. The gyros are matching each other. Good news, and now I'm going to power up the CMC uh, again. The EVA
1: lasted four and a half hours. All tasks were successfully performed.
0: During the EVA, the two astronauts successfully installed the new 24-foot cable for the newly activated indoor six-pack gyros. But it wasn't exactly easy. Using a special tool designed for the task, Lausma twisted the old connections from their sockets and then twisted the new cables into place. This was much more difficult in microgravity than it would have been on Earth. When twisting something in zero G without gravity holding you in place, you also twist yourself unless you are secured in place. Once again, the work that was to be done had not been anticipated during the Skylab's design phase and as a result there were no footholds, handholds, or rails on the structure for the purpose of keeping an astronaut from spinning around on an object that he was trying to twist. However, they did have the portable foot restraints. Lausma recalled, quote, So I ended up wedging myself somehow so that when I turned on these connections, which were hard to get off, I didn't rotate myself out of the picture. It took a fair amount of sweat and so forth to figure out how that was going to be done. It was one of those things that the water tank misleads you on. It's not perfect in neutral buoyancy. End quote. Of course, when Lausma was struggling with the connectors, Bean had a difficult time not asking Jack questions and making suggestions as Al wondered if this could be the end of the mission. Finally, Jack had had enough and ask Al to not talk for a while, and just let him do his work. That seemed to do the trick, because in about five minutes, Jack reported that he had connected the cable. With the gyro work finished, they also attached two samples of the parasol material to a handrail to be retrieved for examination during later EVAs. And they changed out the Apollo telescope mount film cassettes as well. The EVA was a total success and the new six-pack gyro was working nominally. Owen Garriott later recalled the view during the spacewalk as being amazing. Quote, As I was sending film canisters back to Jack with a telescoping rod, I had a few moments to just enjoy the scenery. At that moment, we were moving eastward across the South Pacific, approaching Chile. To my right, I could see the high Andes mountains, topped with snow and even high lakes and salt deposits, extending all the way to Tierra del Fuego. Looking to my left, the Andes extended all the way to Peru, Large cumulonimbus clouds, thunderclouds, reached upwards to quite high altitudes near the equatorial tropics. Their vertical extent noticeable even from 435 kilometers high, and long shadows were cast in sunset colors over 100 kilometers down sun. Then, looking straight ahead of our ground track, I could see over the Andes, across Argentina, to the Atlantic Ocean. Magnifico. quote. For Jack Lausma, the EVAs were the most memorable part of being in space. Jack said, quote, The launch and re-entry obviously get your attention, but every other day kind of fades into the day before and the day after except for the times we did the EVAs. Those were just spectacular. Of course, at that time, we didn't have the continuous communication provided by the communication relay satellite. We could just talk when we were over a ground station. And, if we were lucky, we could miss every ground station for a full orbit. You are out there, by yourself. You just kind of felt self-reliant. More self-reliant than you might otherwise feel. I remember going out to the Apollo telescope and having Alan turn off the running lights on the Skylab. We were in darkness over Siberia somewhere and there were no lights down there. I almost couldn't see my hand in front of my face. I'm whirling around the world at 17,500 miles an hour, hanging on by one foot. I could hardly see anything, and I thought, who in the heck has ever done this before? Nobody, or at least it was a rather unique opportunity. It was those kinds of things that I relished that made the whole trip memorable. On mission day 29, the second crew broke the first crew's record for space flight. As a result, for this brief moment in time, Al, Jack, and Owen held the world record for continuous
1: spaceflight. Early next day, the crew set a record for the longest manned spaceflight. flight. They had already traveled 11 and a half million miles. What's more, productivity was at an all-time high. They were now running well ahead of schedule and even requesting jobs to increase the daily workload. One such task was the behavior of bubbles in zero-G.
4: And we will uh, try to cause the perturbation to it again. Now, you see, the uh, oscillations uh, are much less damp and uh, it exhibits almost all of the pre-modes of oscillation as you would expect for a uh, uh, more or less a ball of liquid like that. we will spin up those oscillations again by deploying an air jet on
2: the bubble. Okay, there, it's freely floating.
0: By mission day 30, the crew had made up their Apollo Telescope Mount observation time missed due to the problems earlier in the mission. They were now projected to exceed the 260-hour Apollo Telescope Mount Sun viewing goal, and they were ahead in their corollary experiments as well. Skipping ahead to Mission Day 37, Garriott wrote in his diary, quote, Almost everything on my personal list of extra items has been worked in. TV science demos are not too good. Still may get some worked in. Quote. In fact, for a generation of schoolchildren, these science demos that were worked in were one of Skylab's most familiar legacies. Garriott continues, quote, Before flight, I prepared a list of hopefully interesting demonstrations that I might videotape or record on film that could be turned into instructional films for students, probably high school level, but possibly older and younger. They would be unique to the weightless environment and also challenge their thinking about physics In this exotic environment, I obtained a few one-quarter inch by two-inch rod magnets before flight. A few dollars from Edmund Scientific. Stowed them in my personal gear and made use of other on-board hardware items for these demonstrations. End quote. It turned out the magnets were quite effective in demonstrating for students the unique environment of microgravity. When released from Garriott's fingers, they oscillated back and forth, similar to a terrestrial magnet. But in microgravity, they oscillated in three dimensions instead of one or two, like on an ordinary compass. When two magnets were put end to end, their oscillation rate was much reduced. When placed side by side, they barely oscillated at all because their two magnetic fields canceled each other out. In another experiment, a mounting frame was used to spin extra-large flat metal nuts off the bolts on the frame. It is a fact that nuts do not stay on bolts well in 0G because the lack of gravitational forces reduces friction and makes them easy to spin off. Microgravity allows the bolts to be stably spun as compared with 1G spinning them by hand alone where they always have a considerable wobble. When a magnet was taped to their face, the spinning nut was found to process very nicely in space. After the crew returned home, these films and videos were edited and a script prepared to show how the experiments worked in weightlessness. Each film was about 15 minutes long and was created with help from astronaut Joe Allen and a local contractor. The films were distributed by most NASA centers and were widely viewed by many millions of students in their classroom settings. Some of the titles are Zero-G Conservation Laws in Zero-G Gyroscopes in Space Fluids in Weightlessness Magnetism in Space and magnetic effects in space. Alan Bean and many others were impressed, both with the experiments that Garriott performed and with his dedication in using his Sunday free time to carry them out. By mission day 38, the crew was talking about extending their mission. NASA had some concern with this, because the first crew's red blood cell mass was down 15%, and it did not start improving until 17 days after their return. Perhaps the most important scientific work done by this crew was the solar photography. By day 39, Owen Garriott had distinguished himself in that category. The data he collected was far better than his fellow crewmen. Bean recognized this and assigned Garriott to perform most of the Apollo telescope mount work.
3: Working 12 to 16 hours a day, the men accomplished nearly twice as much scientific work as planned. The crew's most important scientific contribution may well be the mass of solar pictures and data gathered with the Apollo telescopes. Thousands of solar photos were taken, and more than 100 solar flares were studied. Two exceptionally large solar flares were observed. One of them expanded to over 17 times the diameter of the Earth. Under the direction of Garriott, a solar scientist by profession, the awesome event was photographed and measured from the first minutes of eruption. In all, the astronauts took over 100,000 pictures of the sun, stars, and earth.
0: On day 39, Garriott wrote in his diary, quote, Writing at the Apollo Telescope Mount panel. First time I've ever had enough time to write up here. We've had fantastic solar activity the last five or four days. Sunspot numbers were greater than 150. 178 once, I think, Subflares more or less routine. We don't respond in flare mode to save film. End quote. During the second cruise two-month stay on orbit, the sun made two full rotations and also changed its daily sunspot activity from the low teens to over 150. It provided a marvelous opportunity to study the sun in all its different appearances. With Garriott now handling most of the Apollo Telescope Mount work, it freed up Bean and Lausma to do other things like using the electron beam gun. Another set of
4: experiments that we have on Skylab uh, is to uh, explore the industrial uses of space. Here before you have a uh, an electron beam welding gun. That doesn't look like a welding gun that we have on Earth, but it's uh, operated by uh, high intensity or high energy beam of electrons, which will strike uh, metallic uh, material in this chamber, which can be evacuated, and it's uh, capable of melting the metal and welding two pieces together. Additionally, uh, with this uh, chamber and the electron beam gun, we can uh, produce. Uh, Perfect spheres or ball bearings. So will uh, grow crystals in here, as you know. Perhaps uh, much of metallurgy and crystal uh, growth and the formation of metals is very dependent upon gravity. We believe that we can grow perfect crystals and uh, perfect metals without the uh, presence of gravity, and we're examining that particular phenomenon here in Skylab.
3: By the 40th day of the mission, routine medical checks indicated that the physical condition of the astronauts had stabilized. Erratic heartbeats and blood pressure had become normal, and weight losses changed to slow gains. The crew's physical improvement was at least partially due to a stepped-up program of exercises. But NASA doctors also suspect that the body may gradually adjust to weightlessness by itself. The mental attitude of the astronauts was good throughout the 59 days in space. Their appetite was very good. In fact, the crew consumed more food than was allotted for the second of three manned missions aboard Skylab.
0: On day 42, Owen captured an X-class solar flare. Bean wrote in his diary, quote, Owen got an X-class flare first time manning the Apollo Telescope Mount panel this morning. We all hustled up there to help. It was well done. The big daddy flare we had been waiting for. All of us were laughing and cutting up. Owen had said yesterday he had used up all his luck. Guess he didn't. End quote. Even though the ground said no to an extension of their mission, the crew hadn't given up yet. They started looking through what the previous crew left behind and found 10 Earth Resources Experiment Package film cassettes that they could use on a possible seven-day extension. Nevertheless, on Mission Day 43, NASA was beginning to talk about re-entry. Still, Garriott wrote in his diary that health and spirits were higher than ever. Furthermore, the whole crew wanted an extra week extension to their mission. Those high spirits might have been helped along by Garriott's successful capture on film of another coronal mass ejection on day 43. The highlight of mission day 44 was the aurora. Garriott wrote in his diary, quote, Lots of good southern aurora, greenish at low altitude, reddish above, lots of structure, kinks, vertical striations, changes by the minute, some of it almost directly beneath Skylab, just before sunrise. According to Garriott's diary, Mission Day 45 was a pretty good day. He was up an hour early and worked two hours late at the Apollo Telescope Mount. And quote, still in the running for mission extension. End quote. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host. I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 418 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab 3, AMU, EVA 2, Space Physics, Solar Physics, and Mission Extension. Our next episode should be released on or about July 27th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email address in the text box on the right side of the page. It's about nine boxes down, so you got to scroll down a little bit to see it. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 237 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers, including Spotify. If you like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Space Rocket Hist, and you can follow me on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with me on Patreon at patreon.com/slash Space Rocket History. Had uh, been having some new listeners asking questions about the podcast, and I wanted to mention. Again, that we have a video that pretty much explains the scope, the timeline approach I take, how I select what gets covered, and the format for the podcast. This will answer a lot of your questions if you're a new listener. The video is titled The 400th Episode Celebration or something to that effect. To view it, you can go to the homepage. It's a YouTube video. But you can find it by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the YouTube link. And that's about the fifth box down on the right. And that should take you to that video. If you are a new listener, I really want to encourage you to check this out because it does have a lot of the answers that you've answers to the questions you've been asking me. Alright, my afterthoughts, as always, I apologize for my numerous mispronunciations. I continue to be amazed by this crew. From the space sickness and vomiting during the first days of the mission, they completely turned it around, caught up with their work, and unbelievably wanted to extend their mission. They wanted more time in space, the same space that made them so sick before. They wanted to stay up longer. Now, these guys loved what they were doing, and they just couldn't get enough. They were begging for more work, and they got it. Now, the only question is, will they get that seven-day extension to their mission? Keep listening, and we will find out. Have you ever worked on repairing something? And you're maybe having just a little bit of trouble. Nothing insurmountable. But you know you're going to be able to fix it. Then some well-meaning person, maybe your boss or perhaps a spouse. (laughs) Starts looking over your shoulder asking questions or making suggestions. And you have to stop to talk to them now you can make the repair you just need to concentrate on what you're doing i've had that experience and i'm sure many of you have too and so did jack lausma while he was trying to connect the new cable to the old six-pack gyro on eva number two of course Al Bean took his responsibility as commanding officer very seriously, so he was getting worried that if Jack wasn't successful, they might not have to leave they might have to leave the station, you know because you can't operate that thing if the gyro's out of whack, so you can understand his concern. Well, it finally got to the point that Jack just had to ask Bean to please stop talking for a while. <laughs> and that did the trick. That was what he needed to complete the repair. <laughs> I, I, I know your pain. I feel your pain, Jack, and those of you out there. I was curious if any of you saw the Skylab experiment videos that I mentioned when you were in school perhaps, like uh, middle school or high school, Now, I don't recall seeing them, but it's been so long for me since I was in middle school or high school that I've forgotten a lot of stuff. So, uh, I was just wondering if maybe some of you had remembered it, seeing those videos. If you did, send me an email. I'd like to hear from you. And on that subject, did you know that nuts spin off bolts better in space? I'd never thought about that before. Strangely enough, but it does make sense because the gravity on Earth would increase the coefficient of friction and thus produce a wobble. So in space, you don't have that gravitational effect and the nuts spin easier. I guess they have to use a lock washer or some Loctite to hold the nuts on the bolts in space. Honestly, I'm not sure how they do it, but uh, they must use something. I've really never pondered the question until right now. Okay, lastly here, I have another one of Beam's diary entries that caught my attention that I didn't read in the episode. It seems as though that shower wasn't working so great for the crew. They didn't like it. It took an hour for them to take a shower, and they didn't like doing that. So Beam came up with an alternative. This is a... From his diary, day 29, quote, Takes an hour to shower. Now using the head that's the waste management compartment for sponge baths because sponges squirt water out when pushed on the skin. Bathing has become more pleasant as I have been less careful about sprinkling water about. I tend to now splash it somewhat and after the bath is complete, wipe up the droplets on the walls. None on the floor like on earth, if you do the same. End quote. So now Bean is keeping clean in the waste management compartment. The head. Finally, Have a little bit of personal news. Now, if you don't want to hear this, please feel free to just skip right over it. It's no problem, and I won't even know that you did it. The main reason I tell you folks this is just because many of you have written in and said you like to hear about it. So that's what I'm doing. So, in personal news, the soybeans in the 15 acre field are still growing, and our little garden is still growing. Did some weeding the other day and I had to stop several times to catch my breath. I think it is because my hoe is too short. I constantly have to bend over and it pushes on my diaphragm when I bend over and I can't breathe good. So I have to weed some and then stand up straight and catch my breath. So I, And then I can bend back over and, and weed some more. I think it could be cured if I had a longer hoe. But anyway... Weeding's not fun. Remember I was telling you about the crack in the basement wall? Well, believe it or not, that thing is still separating further. Every time I go into the basement, which is just about every day, I look at it and get disgusted. And the cracks in the basement floor are still slowly growing wider, like we were fertilizing them. The outdoor portion of the heat pump is beginning to resemble, well, it actually does resemble the Tower of Pisa, but it seems to be steady now. It doesn't seem to be leaning anymore now. So we're holding steady on the leaning tower of heat pump. And of course, there has been no word from the builder as to when they're coming to fix all these and other problems. Has some sad news. Uh, Mrs. SRH's mother, that's my mother-in-law, has developed a problem with one of her heart valves. It's not closing properly, and it's letting a lot of blood feed black back into the her heart. So it's not as efficient in pumping blood. Now, believe it or not, there is a surgery they can do intravenously to replace that valve if she qualifies now that to me is amazing that they can replace a valve intravenously used to be they would have to just cut you open and do open heart surgery but they can do it intravenously now that just amazes me they can do that through a vein anyway she is 90 years old so there's a question if she qualifies for the surgery so she has to get scheduled to take a test to determine that. And, you know, that's going to take probably a month or two to get scheduled and then take the test and then figure out if she's qualified. And so it's going to take a while, and she has to live with this condition, which it doesn't really seem to be affecting her that much, which is good. And also it's good that she, at 90, still has a strong will to live, and her mind is is still sound, and we can have intelligent discussions, and, and she's quite smart, really. Uh, she, you may not know this. She is from Switzerland, but she's lived in the United States for the last 65 years. She still has that thick French accent. She's from the French part of Switzerland. But uh, I, I don't have any problem understanding her. She's really quite charming and I'm proud to have her as my mother-in-law the rest of her family still lives in Switzerland siblings and uh, cousins and uh, we have visited them in the past and they were just a wonderful people group of people I really liked them they treated us so kindly there and we you know we went and we didn't hardly have to pay for anything they, we stayed at their place, and, and they fed us, and I mean, they have a bakery, and we it was really nice. I liked that. <laughs> that bakery was nice. In, fa- <laughs> In fact, Switzerland was probably the most friendly country that I have visited. People on the street, just regular people you don't know, will just come up to you and help you. If they, if they think you need something, they're going to help you. If you pull out a map, you don't have to ask for help. They will see you and come and help you. I remember one guy was sitting in his office and we were on the street on the sidewalk and apparently he was looking out the window and saw us open up a map. Well, (laughs) he opened his window, I think he was on the second floor, and shouted down to ask if we needed help. Then he came out and told us how to find where we were looking for. <laughs> I mean, these people are friendly. I, I just loved it over there. Mrs. SRH has spent quite a bit of time there when she was a child, and she would sometimes spend the summer over there, and she became quite fluent in French. And she even has that, uh, the Swiss French accent. They mentioned that. <laughs> when they were speaking to her over there, that, that that she has the accent down for that portion of of uh, Switzerland. Well, okay, I digress a bit. Sorry, I hope I didn't bore you too much, but that's kind of little, little known facts about our lives. Over the past fortnight, we received three donations and pledges, and I would like to thank Matthew F. from Oakland, Tennessee, who sent in another donation and moved to the Starship level. With Galaxy emoji. Daryl H. sent in another donation and moved to the Shuttle level with Rocket emoji. Gary A. from Germany pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level with the Shooting Star emoji. Now, unfortunately, our Patreon donors for 2023 have declined to 241. It is I believe the monthly credit card expiration problem that we have once a month. Our total donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and checks, for 2023 have reached 314, with an overall goal of 450 for the year. Now we're at three out of 14 because the donors that came in uh, were repeat donors, so we couldn't add any new donors to the list. So our goal is to reach 450 for this year and we're at 314 and i think we will have a difficult time getting to uh 450 at the rate of uh no new donors on uh, each fortnight so we'll pretty much stay at 314 if that's the case so if you are enjoying the podcast that, will be, that has been running now for over 10 years without commercial interruptions, and you can afford it. Please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com, clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link, or you can donate by check, donate on Venmo, or sale using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. And now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway.
3: Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the SRH Archive magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers or a NASA Meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Ben Maddock. Ben Maddock, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Tell us your address and your SRH prize preference. We'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all of you who have contributed thus far in 2023.
0: My sources for this episode were NASA, Homesteading Space, the Skylab story by David Hitt, NBC News, Skylab, our first space station by Leland Baloo, Skylab America Space Station by David Shaler, Novamente Website, Outpost on the Frontier by Jay Chalatik, The Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that is all I have for this episode. We'll try to have episode number 419 posted on or about July 27th. So long for now.